So we've been working through the series we've called The Songs of Christmas. We're, uh, we're looking at Luke's gospel. In Luke's version of, of the birth of Christ, he records four times where the key characters kind of burst into this, this uh, poetic praise. And uh, Pastor Joel started us a couple weeks ago, and we looked at the song of Zechariah, which is called the Benedictus, coming from the first word, um, where he uh, uh, gives praise to God. And I don't, I don't remember what you recall from the sermon, but what stood out to me um, was this, this idea, this, this sense that um, God showed Zach, gave Zechariah a promise that he'd be born, a son would be born onto him, and then when Zechariah saw that, I mean, that's a big promise, but a relatively small promise fulfilled, Zechariah could have confidence that the bigger promise about Messiah and what he would accomplish would be fulfilled. And then God does the same thing with us. He fulfills the small promises so that we can have confidence that his big promises will be fulfilled. That was kind of the, the, uh, the, maybe the prelude to the Christmas songs. And then last week we jumped to the end and we did what we called the encore, the song of Simeon, which uh, um, is kind of a hard one to talk about at the holiday time. Um, but Simeon was the first one who faced death knowing that he had encountered the Messiah, the Savior of the world and of his people. And so we talked about this reality that we can face death, whether we're grieving the loss of a loved one or, or whether we see dark, the dark shadow of death approaching, we can face it with confidence, knowing that because Messiah has arrived, because Jesus was born, we can have hope even in death. Today we're going to look at the song of Mary. Let's see if you remember what the name, what its name is. Do you remember Pastor Joel told us a couple weeks ago? It's the Magnificat. That comes from the first Latin word, um, which we would translate magnifies. And then next week we'll look at the song of the angels. Mary's song is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And if you want to turn there, uh, we'll read that in a few minutes. Um, but let me just make a comment. Um, some of us said to me, like, these, don't, these aren't really songs. Like, they don't rhyme, and it, it just seems to be like thoughts stringed together. And, and there's a sense that that's true, but um, biblical scholars and theologians call these as the songs of Christmas because in form and in structure and even in content, they're a whole lot like what we find in the book of Psalms. And we understand that the book of Psalms was, was the hymnal for the Jewish worship. And so, so there's definitely a sense where even perhaps they don't translate well, but these are songs. So today we're going to look at the songs of Mary, the song of Mary, the Magnificat. Now the, the tricky part maybe um, before we get to that is that Mary's obviously become a household name. Uh, if, if you have Roman Catholic background, then, then you have a, a very high view of Mary, or, or you did growing up and, and in the church that you grew up in. And, and even if you don't, even if, even if you've been Protestant your whole life, you've never been Catholic, um, there's still this sense like she is greatly revered. She is, after all, the, the mother of our Lord. And, and, and that's the way it should be. Jesus said that, that she should, be, should and would be greatly you know, revered and respected. But before we read... Mary's song, let's try to imagine the context. Okay, so we're not talking about a Mary 2,000 years after the birth of Christ who's singing the words or saying the words that we're going to hear today. 
We're talking about a young girl who was probably somewhere between 12 and 14 years of age. We'll just say 13 for ease of conversation. And we, we know that because the Jewish tradition was after a girl had had her first menstruation cycle, she was betrothed in marriage. She was given to a man to be married. It was an arranged marriage, mind you. It wasn't built on romantic love and attraction. Uh, there were other realities that both sets of parents took into consideration as they arranged a marriage. And so uh, we know from the text that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Now here's the thing about betrothal. There's a really good chance that Mary had never really even met Joseph before, or, or maybe only a few times. Chances are he was at least a decade, maybe 15 years older than her. And um, she didn't really have a say in this, it, it, which was fine. That, to us, that's horrible, but that's the way their culture worked. That wasn't a problem for her. Um, but she didn't really know this man to whom she was betrothed. We don't use that word much, betrothed. We talk about engagement. Engagement is the commitment before the commitment today. Then it was betrothal. One reality about betrothal, perhaps, that, that we miss is that neither Mary nor Joseph could get out of this commitment without legal action. Okay, so in that sense, it's not like our engagement. In our engagement, you can give the ring back and, and uh, you cancel the flowers and cancel the photographer and cancel the minister and, and it's off. Um, but in this culture, they were committed for life at this point. So here's a 13-year-old who um, is legally bound to a man that she may not even really know to be his wife, and suddenly one day, a being appears before her claiming to be Gabriel, who stands at the, at the throne of God and says, you know what, Mary, God really, really likes you. He's found a lot of favor with you, and so you're going to give birth to Messiah, the Savior of your people, the, the one that your people have been waiting for for years, for centuries, through you. Now, can, can you imagine being a 13-year-old going, uh, hold on, I'm not even married. Like, I, uh. And so what does Mary do when, when Gabriel says this? Mary, Mary says, well, how's that going to work? She actually says um, in, in 134, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I've never even like been with a man. Now, Pastor Joel pointed out a couple weeks ago that both Zachariah and Mary, when confronted with the news about an unexpected birth, both of them said, uh, what? But I want you to notice that whereas Zachariah, Gabriel heard his question and said, uh, time out, you didn't believe, so now you're going to be mute until the day your son is born. When Mary asked the question, Gabriel didn't condemn her for doubt. He didn't punish her for not believing. So there's something in Mary's question when she says, how can this be? That is a legitimate question. Like, like, like mechanically, how's that going to work? I know how these things work, and that doesn't work, so how's it going to work? Maybe her question is, well, well what's going to happen to me? Because I'm legally bound to this man. And if I'm found to be pregnant now, before we've consummated the marriage, the assumption is going to be that I've had an adulterous affair. That 
the very least, that's a, a, an embarrassing divorce for my family. At the worst, that's, that's death by stoning for me. How is this going to work? And Gabriel's response, do you remember Gabriel's response? The power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's incredible. Gabriel reminds her, you know what, this whole thing is of God. This is God's initiation. This is God's doing. He'll make it work. He'll work out the mechanics. And the Holy Spirit will, will, will take care of the details. You be faithful and trust God. And so here we've got this, uh, this 13-year-old girl betrothed to be married and um, now told that she is or will soon be pregnant. Now, if you're a 13-year-old girl and you just found out you're pregnant, what's the last thing you want to do? other than be pregnant? Yes, you don't want to tell your parents. And for Mary, she doesn't want to tell her chatan, her fiancé, Joseph. She doesn't want to do that. So Mary does what kind of makes sense. She gets out of town. The angel had told her that Anne Elizabeth is also pregnant. And so, so Mary's going, well, hold on a second. If Anne Elizabeth is, is too old to be pregnant and she's pregnant because an angel appeared to, to Uncle Zachariah, she's going to get where I'm coming from. I'm going there. And so Mary gets out of town. Um, I can imagine that, that on her way, she's nervous, she's scared, and you know, she's riding on the cart or she's walking along the road, and, and it dawns on her, hold on a minute. Aunt Mary is a pastor's wife. She can't get mad at me for this. Even the pastor's wives in the audience didn't find that at least a bit ironic. So uh, Mary and Elizabeth connect. Elizabeth says that when she heard Mary's voice, the baby in her womb, who we know to be John the Baptist, started to do barrel rolls, like leaped in her womb. And so now Mary's going, well, I guess it wasn't a bad dream. I guess this is really going to happen. The only evidence she has is the word of Gabriel and the word of Elizabeth at this point. And she burst into this song that we're going to read today. Okay? The setting isn't dove-eyed Mary, hand on her belly, staring gratefully into the sky. The setting is a scared-to-death teenager who trusts God and bursts into this song of praise. Let's read it together. We're going to start at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his service, servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy, circle that word mercy on your notes or in your Bible, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. It's this wonderful song. This beautiful song sung by a scared teenager who doesn't understand what's happening but believes 
that somehow God is in all of this. And before we look specifically at the content of her song, I want to ask just two questions. When I'm faced with news that I don't like, that I don't expect, do I have the ability to draw on the entire Bible for God's promises? Do I have the ability when encountered with something I don't understand, don't like, don't want to deal with, do I have the ability to go uh, the entire book of Scripture and to, to draw on God's promises for that time? You might not recognize it just from reading or listening to the, uh, the verses we just read, but, but this song that Mary sings, almost verse for verse, tracks with Hannah's song, from 1 Samuel. Do you remember who Hannah was? Hannah was the, well, she became the, the mother of Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, you, remain, you may remember, that um, was significant in anointing Saul and then anointing David to be king. King David, the, the greatest king in all of Israel's history. Well, his mother was barren and couldn't give birth to a son, and so she prayed for the Lord, and when she discovered that the Lord had heard her prayer and answered her prayer, and she would she would give birth to a son, she also burst into a song. And as you put Hannah's and Mary's side by side, it's, it's striking how similar they are. So apparently Mary was familiar. And when confronted with this reality that she was going to have a baby that she hadn't expected, her first thought goes back to Hannah. And she sings a song very similar. Not only that, but, but these, these uh, ten verses have somewhere between 35 and 80 Old Testament quotes and allusions. That means in these 10 verses, somewhere between 35 and 80, it depends on how you look at it, she either quotes directly phrases from the Old Testament or she uses words and phrases that, that biblical scholars go, that's clearly a reference to this passage. That clearly connects with, with this passage in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, listen or, or look on your notes. Uh, all of the Old Testament books that, to which Mary alludes or from which she quotes, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, Job, Psalms, 32 times she quotes from the book of Psalms. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and the Italian prophet Malachi. I mean, she's on a roll. She's confronted with this news that doesn't make sense, that she doesn't like. And on the spot, she's able to draw from all of God's promises, from all of the scripture that her people know. Is that my default response? Is that where I go when I'm encountered with things that I don't like and don't understand and can't control and wish were different? Do I have the ability to draw on the fullness of the word of God and the promises there? It's incredible. Instead of cowering in fear, instead of trying to negotiate and bargain, Mary worships. So my, I guess the, the second question I have as I, as I think through what Mary sings here is, do I worship wholeheartedly even when I can't see what God's doing? Do I have the ability to open my heart and sing God's praises even when I'm scared, even when it doesn't make sense? Can I trust God and praise God even when it's all 
backwards and, and messed up and sideways, when, when, I'm, when I'm being attacked and blamed for things that I, I didn't do, can I give praise to God in those moments? When my past mistakes are knocking on the door again, in those moments, do I have the ability to praise God? When things are out of control and, and there's nothing that I can do to affect change, in those moments, can I praise God? Do I have a relationship with God that causes me to trust him regardless of what's in my foreview? When you lose that job that you would have sworn was a gift from God, do you have the ability to praise God, to trust him because of your relationship with him? When your child walks away from God and faith and the church, is your relationship with God strong enough that you can trust him, that you can lean into his promises? This is perhaps where I was convicted most as I studied this passage and prepared for it. Is my relationship with God deep enough and strong enough? Do I know scripture well enough that when I hit a bump in the road or when there's a mountain in front of me, my knee-jerk reaction is to worship God, to draw on the promises of his word, trusting, trusting that his word hasn't failed yet and that in this circumstance, it's not going to fail either. That was where Mary was. A scared teenager, literally scared for her life, I believe, and yet she had the ability to trust God. And in the song that, that she sang in those 10 verses we read, uh, I, I think there's at least four reasons we can see why she trusted God and why we can trust God in the middle of our hard times. The first one is that God's salvation is personal. God's salvation is personal. Notice again the first couple verses of her song, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word salvation, my mind immediately goes to salvation from sin, the reality that, that, that God took on flesh, lived among us, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death. God the Father allowed our punishment to be on him. He rose from the dead so we can have confidence that indeed he was the, uh, the perfect lamb of God. And now we can receive forgiveness because he's paid the punishment. And that's true. But if, if your understanding of salvation is only about eternal consequences from sin, you don't have a very big God. I mean, that's a big deal. But when the Bible talks about salvation time and time again, it talks about the eternal salvation side by side with salvation from the temporary, with what's going on here and now. A biblical view of salvation doesn't focus on one to the neglect of the other. It brings them side by side and says our God is big enough to save us not only for eternity, but today and now, in this moment, in this hour, our God will save us. And I think when, when, uh, when Mary sings about God, her Savior, she's not just singing about salvation in the eternal sense. 
especially here in this song. I think she's singing about salvation in the here and now sense. Again, think about it. She's a 13-year-old girl who literally could be stoned when she returns home. Her people are poor and oppressed. The Israelites are under the thumb of the Romans. Her family is poor. She personally is relatively insignificant. I mean, the fact that God found favor with her and she's going to give birth to the Messiah, that's a big deal. But apart from that, Mary's nobody. Matter of fact, Mary doesn't become somebody until Simeon's prophecy from last week is fulfilled. You remember his song ended with, and uh, by the way, Mary, a sword's going to pierce your soul too. And yet Mary sings, my God has saved me. And so I, I, I wonder if we know God personally, if we've experienced his salvation personally, not just salvation from sin, but salvation from the temporary stuff that looks like it's going to undo us. I wonder what that is. What would you say, you know what, I, I think this could be the end. This could be the end of my friendship, the end of my marriage, the end of my job, the end of my reputation. And it's that stuff that God wants to step in and intervene and where he wants you to see him as Savior. Now notice that God didn't save Mary the way that she probably expected. So the, the Jews never threw off Roman oppression. Her family never became wealthy. Joseph didn't become an aristocrat. Um, she, she did gain significance, but only after incredible hardship. But she understood that she had a God who knew her personally, who had personally intervened in her life. Friends, the reality is that God doesn't see you as a number or a hash mark on his heaven versus hell list. God knows you personally. He knows your name. Scripture said he's counted every hair on your head. He doesn't just like the idea of you. He loves you for who you are, for whose you are. He's not just interested in adding more people to heaven and eternity. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants to intervene in your life daily. Again, look at what Mary said. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Friends, the reality is, even if it feels like it, God has not forgotten you. Just the opposite. His mind is full of you. He hasn't deprioritized you. He hasn't put you out of his mind. He remembers you. And he wants to intervene in your life. He wants to be mighty for you. Notice what she says in verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Listen, we can trust God in the midst of hard times, not just because his salvation is personal, but because his mercy is overwhelming. 
somewhere on your notes or in the margin of your Bible, I want you to circle the word mercy and, and write this phrase, his love endures forever. You're familiar with that phrase. You've heard it before, yes? Yes? Okay, thank you. Chris has. I appreciate that, Chris. His love endures forever. This refrain is repeated all throughout the, the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, we closed our Thanksgiving service by reading from the book of Psalms together. And this phrase, his love endures forever. The two words, mercy and the word love from that phrase are the, the same word. And it's such a big word that the scholars go back and forth on how do we really translate this? Is it love? Is it mercy? Is it loving kindness? What is this? But what's clear is that it's not an emotion. It's not like this mindset that God adapts as he looks at us. But this, this word mercy that Mary uses here, that, that the Old Testament uses over and over again, is about an action. It's about God specifically stepping in and doing something for us that we could never do ourselves and that we don't even really deserve. Shortly or sometime after um, President Calvin Coolidge left office, there started to be a, a story circulating uh, about something that happened when he was president. It, it, it seemed to be that he was in a, ho uh, a hotel one night as he was on a speaking engagement. And, and in the middle of the night, he awoke, President Coolidge awoke, and, and discovered there was a cat burglar in his room going through his stuff, seeing what he could take. And uh, calmly, with courage, President Coolidge spoke up and, and, uh, and asked the cat burglar not to take his watch chain. There was, a, there was a little jewel or pendant on the watch chain that had personal meaning to the president. And so he asked him not to take it. And uh, as he was able, as President Coolidge was able to engage and draw in the cat burglar, he begun to learn that, that this, this guy robbing him was actually a, a local college student. And uh, he didn't have money to pay tuition. He didn't have, even have money to pay his hotel bill. And Calvin Coolidge discovered, President Coolidge discovered that the burglar had taken like $35 out of the president's wallet. The president convinced him um, to put the money back in the wallet and to give the president back his wallet. The cat burglar did that. And then the president took the money out and gave it to him and said, this is a loan. Repay me when you have the opportunity. And, and the president continued to talk to this guy who's robbing him in the middle of the night and convinces him to go back the same way that he had come in so that he could avoid secret service and not be arrested for breaking in and stealing from the president, which the guy does and gets away scot-free. And as the story goes, years down the road, he repaid the loan. It's a, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it's a beautiful picture of God's mercy. That while we were caught red-handed, God stepped in and intervened. And he sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. But not, not just mercy again in the eternal sense, but mercy in the here and now. God intervenes in our lives, doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, accomplishing in our lives what we could never accomplish, what we don't deserve. And yet God intervenes because of his mercy. And when you experience the mercy of God, not just mercy to forgive you of the unforgivable, but mercy to intervene and 
what seems like it'll undo you. The only word is overwhelming. God's salvation is personal. His mercy is overwhelming, and his ways are shocking. You know, I don't, I don't know why it surprises us, but it, it still seems to. Scripture paints a picture of God from beginning to end who has a soft spot for, for the marginalized, the oppressed, the overlooked, the, the downtrodden, the widow, the orphan, the, the single mom. For some reason, since Cain killed Abel, God has had this, this M.O. of caring for those no one else will care for of doing incredible things for them. And after he brought Israel out of Egypt, he was constantly pointing back and saying, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. You were oppressed. And I stepped in and made a difference. Now do the same for other people. And time and time again throughout Scripture, God makes it clear that he has a special place in his heart for those who are downtrodden and shoved to the side and forgotten and mistreated, and for those who help them. A couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with one of our, uh, our youth sponsors who drives the van. Do you know that we send out a van on Wednesday nights to pick up kids who can't get to church any other way? Well, he and I were talking, and we were, we were both rather frustrated um, because we're down to just two van drivers on Wednesday nights, which... Um, which is a problem because if one of them can't show up for some reason, we can't send the van. We have to have two adults in the van just to make sure that everyone's safe and there's no concerns and we've got insurance. And, and, and we're both, we were both just kind of grinding our teeth and frustrated with this reality of the age that we live in. And that there's weeks when, when these kids don't get to church. And this, this, this youth sponsor, this man I was talking with, he said, he said Pastor Earl, uh, several weeks back I asked one of the boys who rides the van, uh, one of the, the boys that I know, he said, I asked him, why do you come here? I mean, not like that, like, you know, that, that, that's not the way he said it. You know, but like, what is it that, that brings you to Beulah time week in and week out? He thought maybe it'd be the meal, because of course we have a great meal on Wednesday night. He thought maybe he'd be hanging out with his friends or having fun at youth group, but here's what the boy said. This is the only place where I feel completely safe. This is the only place where I feel completely safe. This is a young man in high school who spends at least eight hours of his day in a public school. He lives in a house, in a home with his mom and younger siblings. In Elkhart, not in Chicago, not in you know, some major city where there's a lot of gang violence. In Elko, you could be on his front porch before I'm done with this sermon. That's how close he lives to our church. And the only place he doesn't have to fear for his life is when he's here for two hours on Wednesday nights. And I'm saying, why is it again that we can't get people to drive the vans to pick up kids? Have we forgotten that God has a soft spot for people who fear for their lives day in and day out? 
for people who, because of the, the country of their birth or the color of their skin, because they're not as smart as everyone else, get pushed to the margins. They get forgotten. They get left behind. This is who God is. God loves each of us. He has a special place in his heart for those who are forgotten and marginalized, for the widow, the poor, the single mom, the orphan, and for those who help him, help them. God's salvation is personal. His mercy is overwhelming. His ways are surprising. And his covenant is lasting. Verse, 50, verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Friends, the reality is that God's plan hasn't changed since the beginning of the book. God's plan from the beginning is to create a people who he could be among and be their God. He could be with them, be present among them. That hasn't changed. And we know from the end of the story, Revelation 21, John says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, it's happened. I'm done. My vision is complete. I get to be among my people and be their God. God's desire is to have a people who know him personally, who he walks among, who he's daily, hourly, by the minute, intervening in our lives, being part of who we are. And this is the God that Mary praises. In the midst of news that she didn't know what to do with, that was overwhelming, that seems like this could literally be the end of me, she bursts forth in praise to God because she knew a God whose salvation was personal. She had a relationship with God that wasn't just about uh, a ticket stamp to heaven. She knew a God who had intervened in her life with mercy. She understood that God has a soft spot for those who are overlooked and pushed down and forgotten by everyone else. And she knew that when God makes a promise, when he strikes a covenant, it doesn't matter what we do, he's going to keep it. And so if you're here today and you're saying, you know, Pastor Earl, the truth is I was brought up in the church. And I know all this stuff. I could have preached a sermon better than you, Pastor Earl. I, 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 but truth be told, I walked away. And I'm here today because Mom twisted my arm, and you know it's Christmas and all that good stuff. I want you to remember that you have a God who made a promise. And his promise to you is it doesn't matter how long you've been gone. It doesn't even matter if you came back kicking and screaming. If you'll come back, he'll accept you. He hasn't kept track. He hasn't kept a tally sheet. He loves you and he wants to be your God, your Savior. He wants you to experience his mercy. Friends, I don't know where you're at I know the news some of you have encountered. I know it's difficult. But you have a God whose salvation is personal, whose mercy is overwhelming, 
whose ways are shocking, whose covenant is lasting. He has not forgotten you. Worship him, cry out to him, trust him, look to him for mercy and salvation. This Christmas season, may you experience the God about whom Mary sang. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you this morning for the truth of your salvation and your mercy and not just from sin, not just for eternity, but for here and now, from the very things that, uh, that bring us trials, from the, uh, the things that, that look like they're going to be the end of us, that we don't know how we'll ever get through, and yet we have a God who has promised salvation and who always keeps his promise. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who need to see your salvation in the here and now. Oh, they know they're saved. They, they know they're a child of God. But they need to experience your mercy in their life today. They need to know that their Lord, their Savior, has done great things for them. Would you give them eyes to see your working in their lives? Would you give them ears to hear your voice? you give them a heart that is sensitive to the moving of your spirit? Would you help them to know that you're mindful for them and you're mighty for them? Father, we thank you. Thank you that we're never forgotten, never pushed too far to the margins that you don't see us we can stand with confidence that you will fulfill your promises. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Would you please stand so I could bless you as we're dismissed? And uh, after I bless you, if you would um, repeat back and also to you in that way, we'll bless one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. May you be overwhelmed by God's mercy. May you partner with God in his pursuit of the, those who are less than. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. Your love. Go with grace.